You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is episode nine. I'm bringing you this episode from the beautiful land of Portland, Oregon. I've been here this week to participate in the film premiere of a documentary called For the Love Of. We filmed this documentary last November in Paris, France during the COP21 Climate Summit. The documentary follows my process as well as John Mark and Sarah McMillan and William Matthews as we learned about climate change and environmental stewardship. I thought it would be appropriate to tell you about that documentary and I'll put a link to it on makersandmystics.com where you can take a look at it. But it ties into the main topic of today's podcast. This is called On the Relationship Between Beauty and Justice. How does the presence of beauty affect our lives and our actions in the natural world? And does our aesthetic environment influence the moral and social decisions of mankind? That's a big question, huh? But that's where I've been hanging out. And to begin to try and answer this question, I want to turn to the passage of Scripture at the beginning of the Bible when God first interacts with Adam and calls him into divine partnership. And my Scripture is Genesis 2.9. And this is life in the garden. It said, the Lord, in, in Genesis 2, 8, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God planted trees that were first pleasant to the sight. They were beautiful. And then secondly, they were good for food. Why do you think scripture points that out? I think scripture points that out because it's important for us to see the value that God placed upon beauty. He didn't just create trees that nourished the human body, but he created beauty that nourishes the human spirit. See, what food is to the body, beauty is to the spirit. We have a physical need for nourishment, but also a spiritual, emotional, and psychological need for nourishment. In verse 15, God tells Adam to dress and to keep the garden. And that word dress is also one that he uses in Isaiah 19, verse 9, to depict the work of the artisan weaving flax and fine fabric. Therefore, to dress the garden means to come into a partnership with God in continuing the beautification process of the earth. It means a contribution to the soul-nourishing aesthetic of human life. God planted these trees, but then he taught Adam how to cultivate the ground. He didn't just make creation perfect and leave it there. God made creation and then he invited us into the creative process with him. And that's where the term architects of hope comes in. From the very beginning, we've been called to be collaborators with God and our lives are his art. And I think that we as believers 
we are the transformers of society. We get, to, we get to be those that transform society through our communion with the Spirit of God. Jesus' very prayer, when they asked him, how do we pray? He said, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So I believe from the very beginning when God was teaching Adam to, to recognize the beauty realm and to cultivate the earth, and then when Jesus comes and he says, let heaven come to earth this way, the, the entire invitation of mankind is for us to partner with God creatively in bringing the environment of heaven to earth. Paul says that we're citizens of heaven. You know, and I tend to think that this idea of environment is vastly more important than we think. And I, I think about this in cities. I think about this in architecture. I think about it in my own room. I, I sort of have this personal value that I don't keep items that don't have stories attached to them. If you come into my music room and my library, there are all these items, and I'm, and I'm not putting, um, don't take this the wrong way, I'm not putting some sort of spiritual power or value on objects. But I'm saying I, there are stories, these, these things, that, you know, just like when in the Bible, God would encounter someone and he would say, stack the stones up as a memorial of what God did in this place. See, I tend to believe that our person, in one sense, yes, it, it does end here, but our person also extends into the environments we create around us. You know, art is an extension of the artist. The, the artist's heart and soul and being and experience is, is in the art that we make. You know, if I, if I come to your home and, and I look around at the things that you've collected, I can learn something about you. It, it's an extension of your person. Now, uh, blow that bigger picture to the cities that we live in, the communities that we live in architects of hope. Now, as citizens of heaven, I believe that it's our uh, commission to begin to beautify the earth, to beautify our cities in such a way that it reflects our homeland of heaven. So there's a relationship between beauty and justice that's important for us to understand. I've said before that beauty is visual truth. When you, when you really break down beauty, it's different elements in harmony together. What makes something beautiful is it's, it's qualities that are pleasing to the senses when they're encountered. Think of a, of a landscape, a, a mountain range, a beautiful mountain range. You can visualize that, right? You see the beauty, the symmetry, the color, the clouds in the sky. Now for a second, imagine a McDonald's on top of that mountaintop. <laughs> All the beauty just went away, did it not? Because <laughs> the proportion is suddenly wrong. Something's out of place. And justice, like beauty, is the resulting environment of right relationships, of things having been put in order. So when I think about beauty and I think about things in the right order, and then I think about justice and I think about things being put in right order, fairness, people being treated the right way, you know, beauty and justice really are one and the same. Webster defines justice as the quality of being fair. And I think that's funny because the word fair archaically also meant beautiful, like my fair maiden, 
or the fairest of them all. Do you guys know who Dorothy Day was? Anybody who knew Dorothy Day was? Yeah, she was a Catholic worker um, in the 60s, and she said that her intentional relationships with the poor and her determination to find beauty contributed to her pursuit of justice. She believed that providing images of good things uh, like vines and grapes, mothers and children. You know, when Paul said, meditate on pleasant things, meditate on these things. Well, when she dealt with the poor, she would, she would add art to the walls of her, uh, the, the, the place where she was at. She would provide beautiful images because it began to nourish the soul and the spirit of the impoverished people that, that she was ministering to. And she believed that she could create, um, she could reverse systems that didn't work, that sustained brokenness through exposing people to acts of beauty and, and images of beauty. You know, at, at first glance, it could seem like with everything going on in the world right now, what we hear on the news and, and ISIS and just all these different things and environmental issues, whatever it is, and just these terrible crises happening in humanity right now, political, whatever. It would almost seem that, that art and beauty is frivolous in the face of these really heavy, intense things, right? But I wanna suggest that it is because of the desperation and the darkness happening in the world that it's now that God is raising up the artist to a new level. Because the beauty of God is what will face the darkness of the world. And that's why I feel like it is important. It's, it's, it's well beyond whether we allow dancing or painting in our church services. And we talked about this this weekend some, and I, I found it in my notes here uh, from one of our conversations, but I wrote, historically and in modern society, it's more often than not that it's the poets, the storytellers, and the musicians, not the politicians, who win the hearts of the people and become the voices for a generation. See, at least here in America, the politicians can only regulate what the people have really put in place, theoretically. Even in biblical examples, all of the prophets are written in poetic form. All of the prophets, when they begin to prophesy in the scriptures, it's all written in poetic form. There, a, there again, it shows the relationship between beauty and justice. And one example in scripture that really points this out to me, just the, the whole idea of when there's a crisis in the world, that beauty and art is our response to it. See, we, we are to respond in the opposite spirit, not to come under the heaviness of the world. He gives us the oil of joy for, you know, he gives us the garment of praise for. And in John 12, the anointing at Bethany, this, this lady, Mary, pours out her life savings on the feet of Jesus. It was a performance art piece. And she broke every social protocol to perform that. You know, the, the, the men in the room were uncomfortable with her even being there to begin with. It wasn't, wasn't customary. <laughs> but she broke all societal rules and then she poured out her worship in this act of performance art 
on the feet of Jesus. And what did the religious spirit say in response to that? Why this waste? This could have been given to the poor. But he didn't care about the poor. He cared about his pockets. And she poured out her art on the feet of Jesus, prepared him for burial. The fragrance of her worship went out through the room. And he said, this story will go out wherever the gospel is preached. And now 2,000 plus years, I'm standing here telling you about the art that she poured on his feet. That's beauty and justice working together. Because as she poured out her art, she prepared him for the redemption of all of mankind. What bigger justice is there than what she prepared him for? So here's another question. Where does this begin? How do we as the architects of hope, the beautifiers of the earth, begin to take on the desperation of the world? And how do we do it through our art? How do we do it through our lives? How does art and worship play into this mission? And I wanna propose that just like with Mary and the anointing of Bethany, it begins at the feet of Jesus. All art begins with contemplation. All action begins with contemplation. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Let the beauty of God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. See, I believe that the artist, and more specifically the Christian artist, stands at the gateway between heaven and earth with one foot in the realm of heavenly communion and one foot planted in the soil of social engagement. And I think it was, uh, if you guys know who Ravi Zacharias is, brilliant, brilliant man, apologist, but I believe it was him that said, the loss of wonder is the beginning of depravity. The loss of wonder is the beginning of depravity. So rather than beauty and art being this frivolous thing that doesn't have a place in the desperate world that we live in, art and beauty, us sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning to contemplate his beauty, and then moving out in the world in action with that beauty upon us, just like the fragrance of Mary's worship was all over Jesus when he went out. Let the fragrance of that worship be on us that as we abide in the secret place with him and then move out into the world, that fragrance will go out through all that we do. Whether it's the way that we run our businesses, the way that we educate our children, the way that, man, that story, Anthony, about your child just blew me away. I wanna do that with my son when he turns 13. He's four now, so I got a little ways to prepare. But that, that, makes, me, that makes me think of something for, with my own child that I want to add to this message here that's off the script. But my daughter, her name is Evangeline Bell, and um, she's seven years old. And, you know, I mentioned we do these uh, conferences called The Breath and the Clay. And she, we just did one in March, and she knew it was coming up. And every night, she's just had this heart all on her own that she wants to help the children in Africa get clean drinking water. And, and our pastor has a nonprofit called Hydrating Humanity, and they go over there and they drill wells and they, they have done incredible work uh, bringing clean water to indigenous cultures and, and developing nations. And all on her own, she, every night I'll put her to bed and she's like, Daddy, can we pray for the kids in Africa tonight? 
And she just has his heart. And so when the breath and the clay came around, she's like, so you're gathering artists from all over the world and there's gonna be a gallery and music and performance. And it's like, yeah. And she's like, I have an idea. And uh, she said, I want to make these bracelets. And so she, she made these little things on this little loom that, that we got her. And she said, I, I want to uh, make these bracelets and sell them at the breath and the clay. And I want to give all the money to building a well in Africa. She's seven. This is her idea. This is beauty. This is her creativity and justice working together with the Spirit of God at seven. She raised $1,500 in less than a week by selling these. You know what I'm saying? So much so that Hydrating Humanity put a page uh, of her work on their website and she, you know, it takes $6,000 to get a well. And so now we're, we're helping her get that goal, but 1,500 bucks from a little seven-year-old making bracelets, that's beauty and justice working together, you know? I'm like, I was a brat playing with Star Wars and at seven years old, you know? I didn't, uh, I didn't have that mindset, but thank you, Lord. When we are awe-stricken with God's beauty, we have poised ourselves for heaven to come to earth. See, we become what we behold. All that we create begins in the imagination. The imagination is the seedbed of reality. And the imagination, far from just being fiction, the imagination is actually the language of the spirit. What we rehearse in our minds is what we live out through our hands. And hope is attached to the imagination. If you don't have a healthy imagination, you can't have hope. Because it is through the imagination that we visualize the future. And hope deals with being able to see something good in the future. Hope and imagination are tied together. So we need healthy imaginations. I, I believe the reason Paul was so strong against vain imaginings is because he knows the power of imaginings. So Lord, may we be wonderstruck with the beauty of God and may we be given the mind of Christ and healthy imaginations so that we can be the architects of hope in the world around us. Let me give you one last little nugget of goodness. <laughs> Let me turn to it. I think it's Acts 3. It's the gate called beautiful. This is such an amazing story in light of everything we've been talking about. And I'll, I'll close with this story and then we'll pray. It said, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked for alms and fixing his eyes on him with John Peter said look at us so he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I find it fascinating that this broken man is sitting in front of a gate called beautiful. It seems to be a contradiction. Why is this lame man who cannot walk in the fullness of a proper life, why is he seated in front of a gate called beautiful? It's almost an affront in one sense, not the man, but the condition. And I believe that the Lord put him there because that entire act is a visual picture of what we as the redeemed get to walk in, is that which became lame and dysfunctional through the fall of man and all that happened in, in human history. Suddenly, we get to be the restorers of hope. We went to the gate called beautiful and we took that which is lame. We spoke the words of truth into it and that which was lame and dysfunctional suddenly got up, danced and leapt around and became the beauty it was meant to be. Beauty and justice working with the supernatural power of God in one instance. Have you ever thought about the cross? The cross was an execution device. The cross was not a beautiful instrument. It was gory and ugly and, and horrible to look upon. But through the transformative power of God, he took something grotesque and ugly and terrible and he made it the symbol of beauty for the entire Christian faith. <laughs> 